God, in the prophecies of the last things in His Word, demonstrates His grace by periodically offering pictures, visions, they're called in our text, of encouragement interspersed here and there with the visions of doom and wrath. For the most part, chapter 14 of the Revelation offers a breath of fresh air to believers, especially the first five verses that we're looking at today. But even as we progress into chapter 14, even when it gets pretty nasty, it's being nasty to the right people this time. So, if any of you have developed nightmares or chronic depression thus far from this study, as your teacher, be assured that at least for a while the outlook will be a bit brighter. Here now we have something we can look forward to. If you like outlines, here's a quick one for chapter 14. Could we have that, please? Oh, helps to give him a list. First, we have a vision of Christ's triumphant return accompanied by the 144,000. We see that in our, past, in our text today, verses 1 to 5. Then, a vision of three angels, verses 6 to 13. First, the angel with the gospel, the eternal gospel, verses 6 to 7. Then, the angel declaring Babylon has fallen, verse 8. And then the angel declaring doom for the worshipers of the beast, but blessings upon the saints who die in the Lord, verses 9 to 13. So, as I said, there's nastiness in chapter 14, but it's finally, God is, it's a vision of God answering the saints under the altar, saying, when are you going to avenge us? Here we start to see it, or we see a vision of what's going to happen. And finally, a vision of the reaping of the earth, verses 14 to 20. Now, chart 15, please. John Walvard writes this, All of this material is not chronological, but prepares the way for the climax, which begins in chapter 15. Chapter 14 consists of a series of pronouncements and visions assuring the reader of the ultimate triumph of Christ and the judgment of the wicked. Much of the chapter is prophetic of events that have not yet taken place, but which are now impending. The chapter begins with the assurance that the Lamb will ultimately stand in triumph on Mount Zion with His followers. And it concludes with a series of pronouncements of judgments upon the wicked. And then John MacArthur, he writes, Chapter 14 is a bright contrast to the darkness of chapter 13, which describes Satan, the dragon, Antichrist, the final false prophet, deception, the unredeemed idolatry, and the mark of the beast. Chapter 14 describes the Lamb, 
angels, redeemed saints, genuine worship, and those sealed by God. In chapter 13, there is falsehood, wickedness, corruption, and blasphemy. In chapter 14, there is truth, righteousness, purity, and praise. So let's read our first our text, verses 1 to 5 in chapter 14. And I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits of God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth, and they are blameless. Let me just check one thing. Now, you have the NASB. Is it first fruits of God or to God? Uh, what verse is that? The end of verse 4. Um, first fruits to God. To God. Okay, I thought you said four. Sorry, I maybe did. That's, that's one. <laughs> verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. And with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. As we have learned since beginning this study, there are some who are determined to complicate the interpretation of end times prophecy. And this verse includes two elements, some of exerted great effort to confuse needlessly. First is Mount Zion. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. There are commentators that have needlessly tried to locate this Mount Zion in heaven by associating it with a passage in Hebrews. Let's look at that. Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> Hebrews 12, verses 22 to 24. <clears throat> but ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are wit written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Ah, King James. Clears your sinuses, doesn't it? 
But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly. Well, there's one problem with that in associating our passage with that. One pretty big problem. If this is the Mount Zion being referenced in verse 1, then it destroys the whole purpose of the protected, the sealed, the 144,000 who accompany the Lamb. For in the first parenthetical vision, the sixth seal in chapter 7, God seals a remnant from Israel, 12,000 from each tribe, against death during the tribulation. If, if this Mount Zion is in heaven, then this would mean that the, the 144,000 have died during the tribulation. But before we get lost in such mechanics, let's take a moment to exult in this vision of our triumphant Lord standing upon Mount Zion. This is going to be a humdinger. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. Psalm 132, 13-14. Now, the psalmist there in Psalm 132 points us to later in Revelation where at the end of all things, new heaven and new earth, we don't spend eternity with God in heaven. He spends eternity with us here. In the new earth, new Jerusalem. And this psalm speaks of it. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. He desires to be here in Mount Zion. Jesus was circumcised in Jerusalem. He wept over Jerusalem. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain in Jerusalem. To Jerusalem He will return. And in a new Jerusalem, He will make His eternal abode. In cosmic, spiritual, and eternal terms, Jerusalem truly is the navel of the world. To see him standing there in all his glory, and I mean that literally. Every mother here knows all about navels and umbilical cords. It's as if from Jerusalem, God has done everything. And to Jerusalem He will return. A new Jerusalem. Jesus didn't weep over Damascus. He wept over Jerusalem. To see Him standing there in all His glory, ready for the final battle against evil, will be breathtaking. Will he then engage in a bloody battle against Satan? No. Jesus, the Lamb slain, will utter a word. Quote, The sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. End quote. And it will be over. Revelation 19.21 He just speaks. Satan has taken all this time to get an army together. 
ready to do battle. Satan says, boop, done. They're dead. The birds feast on their bodies. Once again, we turn to the prophet Zechariah for a different perspective on the same moment in time. Turn, please, to Zechariah 14. Next to the last book in the New Testament, or Old Testament, sorry. Zechariah 14, verses 3 to 4. Then the Lord... Oh, sorry. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and towards the west. And there shall be a great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove towards the north, and half of it towards the south. Now, That was Mount Zion. Now let's look at the 144,000. And with him, 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Again, there are those who want to make this a different 144,000 for the sole reason that this verse does not include the definite article, the 144,000, as in the same 144,000, which is just silly. Others point out that the group mentioned in chapter 7 are said to have on their foreheads the seal of the living God, while in chapter 14 it is said they have his, the Lamb's name, and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. Oh, it must be a different group. No, this reveals nothing more than that the first reference was speaking generally, and the second specifically. More on this in a moment. <clears throat> Walvard writes this, As Sice points out, their identification with the Father is their mark of being saved Jews. Their identification with the Lamb reveals their salvation through faith in Christ. Their position on Mount Zion, a place of security, blessing, and glory in the earthly Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. So it makes perfect sense that these 144,000, these Messianic Jews saved from death through the tribulation would have both names on their heads. And earlier it said, the name of God. Well, Jesus is God. That's what they believe. These are the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Messianic Jews, all, who have been sealed against death. But not necessarily hardship. They aren't sitting in a well-padded room through the complete tribulation. They'll come out the other end, still alive, bruised, shaken, perhaps scarred, but alive and victorious to stand with their Lord on the Mount of Olives. 
So in this vision, looking roughly three and one half years down the road, the Lord God is revealing to John that they all will indeed make it through the seven years to stand alongside their Lord upon His return. They do not come from heaven with Him. They've joined Him. They have been on earth throughout through the tribulation, and they will join Him as He arrives. Now verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. I like the King James on this one. Uh, Sound of harpists harping on their harps. (laughs) What else do you do on a harp? We need to define our pronouns here. To John on the island of Patmos is not just revealed a vision of images, but a heavenly soundtrack, like nothing ever heard on earth. As best he can describe it, the voice, the word is phone, we'd pronounce it phone, spelled the same, in the singular feminine, has a sound like the sound of many waters, the sound of loud thunder, like the sound of harpists playing harps. Some of our translations interpret this third component as a separate sound. This is one of those verses where it's different in all of our common translations. Some call it a sound instead of a voice, or even the same voice. For example, the original NIV uses sound throughout with no mention of voice, while the New King James uses voice three times but then switches to sound for the harps. The King James uses voice for all, and the NASB intermingles both freely. The Greek phone is used for all three. It's all the same word, and it can mean, no help, it can mean a voice or a sound. So I said all of that when it really doesn't matter, does it? This is simply the... I, I, I interpret this supernaturally. I, I, this is a... I, as we work our way through this, and we've got more to do here, this is an incredible moment. This is Christ returning to earth. And all these things are happening as a part of that. And we begin in heaven with this sound. It's the sound of heaven. This is simply the oral, not O-R, but A-U-R-A-L, oral version of John's many visual descriptions. He's obviously privileged to hear the dramatic yet ethereal music of heaven. Part of it is thunder. It's got weight. It's got bass. Some of it is harps, sopranos. And he struggles to find suitable words with which to describe it. We'd have the same problem. How do you describe the music from heaven? Verse 3. 
And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. So we're in heaven. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who've been purchased from the earth. Here's where many commentators get sidetracked and end up thinking the 144,000 are in heaven. They also credit the wrong ability to them, wherever they are. The lesson for us is, no matter the passage, prophetic, end times, gospels, or the epistles, read it carefully, read it several times, get it right, get the facts. Don't assume something is there. Now, we'll see that we're going to have to make some assumptions in this passage. But that's, that's not your first thing to do. First, once again, pronouns. Who are they? It's important. Some have decided that it is the 144,000 who are singing, but that's not what it says, does it? It says only they can learn the song. It doesn't say they're singing. Verse 3 supplies more details to verse 2. Hence the they are the voice or voices in heaven sounding like many waters, like loud thunder, and like the sound of harps. This song is being performed before, and we've seen that word before, enopion, in the presence of, in the eyes of the throne of God. It's in heaven. The exalted throne of heaven, peopled by, of course, Father and Son, but also the supporting cast of the four living creatures, the seraphim and the 24 elders. The verse does not say that the 144,000 are doing the singing, nor does it even say that they can even hear the song. Only that they are the only ones who could learn the song being sung. Now, we may conclude later on that they are indeed antiphonally singing the song, but that's an assumption. The verse does not say that. Well then, it's fair to ask, who is this doing the singing before the throne in heaven? The passage does not tell us, but from the description of the scene, we might make an educated guess. Turn, please, to chapter 7. Revelation 7. When Linda and I moved back to the Midwest from California during the winter of 91-92, for a time we stayed in an apartment in Marshalltown, our hometown. Well, she's really from Iowa Falls, but we claimed her. The apartment was the second and third floors of an old house on State Street, and it had a large room facing the street that had windows on at least two, maybe three. The memory is going. At least two, but I think three. So it was a front room facing the street, had windows front and the sides. I drew on that room in my writing at the time to express a way to understand the Holy Trinity. 
Imagine God, three in one, sitting, seated on a chair in the middle of that room, facing forward. God. Now, go outside. Magically, you can go outside for the second floor and you won't fall down. This is, this is, this is a vision. You go outside to one of the side windows and you look in at God. He looks different. Then he looks from the front. Same God, but he looks different. Your profiles are not the same, you know. You may not know that. But one side looks one way, one side looks the other. Front on looks totally different. Go outside, move around the outside and look at him head on. He looks, ah, ah, there's majesty, it's God. He looks one way. Go around to the third side and look in the window and look at him. He looks different. Still God. The person seated in the chair never changes. But we've just looked at him from three different aspects. God never changes, but He consists of three different aspects. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each aspect has a different role, a different job description, as it were. But they all, either individually or as one, are God. Now, this illustrates not just the Godhead, but how we're to make sense out of the prophecies the sequential narratives and various parenthetical visions scattered about in the Revelation. It is one narrative, one story, one prophecy. But God in His wisdom offers us various different aspects by which to view and understand the same narrative. In our text, in chapter 14, though we've not yet arrived there in the overall narrative, we are offered an aspect unto Christ's triumphant return to earth. That same moment in time is pictured by a different aspect in Zechariah. If you look at the details, it's a little different in Zechariah. It emphasizes different things than the passage here in chapter 14 as well as many other places in Scriptures, including elsewhere in Revelation. Now, could we have chart 10, please, Adam? The 144,000 are first introduced in chapter 7. Adam is earning his keep this morning. And the parenthetical vision there points us back to the start of the tribulation. When God sealed these Messianic Jews against death. So he did that at the beginning, or he will do that, at the beginning of the tribulation. Before anything happens, he seals them. This remnant would survive the trials of the next seven years. In our current text, in chapter 14, we see them again. The parenthetical vision now pointing forward to the end of the tribulation. Proof before the fact that they will indeed survive and have reason to give praise to their Savior. But there may be another connection between chapter 7 and 14. And again, Two different aspects. 
In the second parenthetical vision in chapter 7, we're granted an aspect of a scene that will take place at the end of the tribulation. Look at chapter 7, verses 9 to 10. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. And palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now that vision is pointing us to the end of the tribulation. Later in the passage, John and we are told who these people are. Verses 14 to 15. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them, or tent. We first met these martyrs in chapter 6, chart number 9, please, Adam. Here we encounter them underneath the altar. The souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and their testimony. A connecting element between those in chapter 7 and those in chapter 6 is that they are both described dressed in white robes. 6.11 and 7.9. The time frame for the martyrs under the altar is somewhere during the tribulation while it is proceeding. Because they are told to wait a while until all the martyrs have been killed. So it's obviously not the end of the tribulation yet. People still need to die before the tribulation will be over. The time frame for the martyrs in chapter 7 is the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation. For it says that, quote, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They're out of it. So it's over. They're no longer crying out for vengeance, but now are gathered around the throne, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now back to chapter 14, please. Chart, back to chart 15 and put your feet up, Adam. Again, the time frame for this five-verse passage is the return of Christ marking the end of the tribulation. So we've shown that there's a pretty good evidence that these in heaven singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders are the same martyrs we saw in chapter 6 under the altar and in chapter 7 praising God and the Lamb before the throne. Just to be clear... These are not us. These are people who were not in the church. They were not raptured. They have become believers during the tribulation, and they have suffered for it. They are martyrs. And the verse continues, And no one could learn the song except the 144,000. 
Now, I stated earlier that nowhere does it state that the 144,000 are actually singing, just that they are alone able to learn the song. That is true. You can raise your hand if you can find in that passage where it says they're singing. But, over against this is the common position by all my primary commentators that the 144,000 do take up the song learned from the voices of heaven. Where they find this, how they assume this, they speak of it as if, well, of course. So, in this, I will bow to their superior scholarship. They've got things hanging on their wall. I don't. They either are seeing something in the text that I'm missing, or for them, it's a logical and valid deduction. Maybe they see something in the Greek underneath. I didn't see it. Now, let's back up just for a minute. We're going to see again this moment when Christ returns predominantly and even more dramatically presented in chapter 19. That's going to be fun. But let's not pass too quickly over what is presented in verses 1 and 2. This will surely be the most powerful scene witnessed by anyone on earth in the history of earth. Yet, it will be as well in the economy of God for the redemption of man. This will be a mind-blowing moment in the history of this earth. It would be picking nits to gauge its importance in comparison to Christ's death on the cross, His subsequent resurrection from the dead, and the ascension into heaven. If not the most dramatic moment, however, this one holds its own against the others. And this is seen in the presumed antiphonal chorus filling the air in both heaven and earth. So picture this. Okay, we're going to assume that the commentators are right and everybody's singing. Christ returns. There's geographical changes take place because of it. It's as if His feet touching down, boom, There's a chorus in heaven singing praise to God and the Son and the Lamb. And that sound comes down to earth. And the 144,000 hear that. They learn it. And they join in. So we have an antiphonal chorus between heaven and earth surrounding the Lamb slain standing just outside of Jerusalem. I'd like to be there to see that and hear it. The chorus begins around the throne of God, descends to earth, where the 144,000 pick it up. And this will be a new song. Because the occasion at Serenades is, a, is brand new. This has never happened before. Never. It's a song of praise from those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It is a redemption song. That's why only the 144,000 can learn it and sing it. 
They're redeemed. They can sing it. It's like only the redeemed can partake of the meal we did this morning. The choir in heaven through martyrdom, the choir on earth through His protection through many trials. It's a song only the redeemed, the saved can sing. And don't miss the import of verse 3's delicious closing phrase. Who had been purchased from the earth. Your translation may say redeemed. The word translator redeemed means bought. We could lean back in our chairs and let this percolate for quite a while. It can mean all sorts of things. All good. But J.A. Sice sums it up nicely. While most people in their day dwell upon the earth, sit down upon it as their rest and choice, derive their chief comfort from it, these are redeemed from the earth withdrawn from it, brought away by the heavenly promises and the divine grace to live above it, independent of it, as no longer a part of it. Also is it said that they are redeemed from men, verse 4, segregated entirely from the common course of the world and removed from the ordinary fellowship of men. Less than this, the language concerning them can scarcely mean. They are quite severed from the world in heart and life. Verses 4 to 5. Oh boy. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. We are going to examine these last two verses as we have the previous, but if you're looking for application for us today in this passage, this is where you'll find it. In fact, that application begins at the end of the previous verse. We've all been purchased from this earth. We've been bought. The last phrase of verse 3 tees this up. And verses 4 and 5 expand on what it means to be purchased or redeemed from the earth. Not just during the tribulation, but right now. What it means to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. It will not be necessary to drive home this application with a sledgehammer. It's lying there on the surface for all to see. It begins, These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. Now, at a cursory reading, this might seem to denigrate the influence of women on men. If you're really on the ball, you might pick that up from this. It reminds me of more than one passage in 1 Corinthians. A minefield. But prepositions are important. First, this is not saying that all of the 144,000 are virginal men. That's not what it's saying. 
Second, it does not say that they were not defiled by women, but with women. The word is meta, M-E-T-A in the Greek, which can include the idea of being in company with, among. That is, it could mean that what we think it means at a glance. They kept away from women, bad women, bad. Could mean that. Or it could mean that both the men and women remained chaste. John MacArthur states it well. He writes that the 144,000 will be separate from Antichrist's empire has already been made clear. They bear God's mark, not the beast's. Nor does this passage teach that they will all be unmarried. Since, here's the punchline, since sex within marriage does not defile anyone. Hebrews 13.4 What it means is that they will stand apart from the sin of their culture. 144,000 morally pure preachers amid the defilement that surrounds them. And we cannot imagine how defiled that will be, how depraved that will be. We think it's bad now. It's nothing like during the tribulation. These people are going to stand apart from that, saying, we're not playing your game. We're separate. Those who were part of the First Corinthians class may recall that there were some in the Corinth church who took this to extreme. They considered themselves to be so spiritual, so spiritual, that they were abstaining even from conjugal relations with their wives or husbands. Yet, at the same time, they were visiting the temple prostitutes. Oi! Because to them, the flesh meant nothing. They were so spiritual, they had gone beyond the body. What the body did didn't matter. You could do whatever you want with it because it doesn't matter. We're spiritual, you see. Neither of those are part of God's plan for marriage. As MacArthur points out, there's nothing defiling about sexual relations between husband and wife. And the verse continues, These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. <clears throat> Don't let that bother you. They're early. We're, not, we're on track. Don't get, don't get nervous. The pot roast will wait. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. From the inside of John Phillips, we might add to this, or go wherever He sends them. Here's what he writes. This is good. A little long, but it's good. And good application for us today, not just in the end times. John Phillips, they allow no rivals, no refusals, and no restraint to mar their dedication to him, the Lamb. Does he need someone to stand upon the steps of the Vatican and cry out against the marriage of Christendom to the beast? There are 144,000 ready to go. Does the Lord need someone to beard the beast at some high function of state and roundly denounce him, his policy, his statecraft, his religion, his economic boycott, his mark, his ministers, his alliance with Satan? There are 144,000 eager to go. Does the Lamb need evangelists to proclaim to the untold millions the gospel of the coming kingdom of God, to climb the highest Himalayas, to cross the desert sands, to blaze evangelistic trails through steaming jungles, 
or to mush huskies across wide Arctic wastes, there are 144,000 ready to go. And though the beast's Gestapo dog their footsteps and wreak upon their converts his direst vengeance, say that three times, yet on they go undaunted and undeterred. That was the very spirit of their consecration as they followed the Lamb whithsoever he led them on earth, and their reward is in kind. They go where he goes, they go where he tells them to go, they serve him, they are his evangelists. Oh, in case anyone was scratching their heads over beard the beast, which I did, I, I had to look that up. It means to face or oppose courageously or brazenly as if grasping the beard. To get in somebody's face and pull on their beard. Now the next sentence. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. We can look at this a couple of ways neither of which eliminates the other. Both are true. First, these 144,000 set apart and sealed by God at the beginning of the tribulation constitute the first and best part of the crop and always, in New Testament terms, offered to God for His service. In the Old Testament, whether children or the fruit of your fields or orchards, it all went to the temple. It all went to God first. The very best, the cream off the top, went to God. Not what was left over, the top. These are not all that are saved during the tribulation, but they are a special sanctified group of Jewish evangelists set apart to proclaim the gospel during treacherous times. They're the first fruits of the saved during the tribulation. Second, we can also see them as representing the first of many others who will be saved. I just said that. The 144,000 may legitimately be viewed as the first fruits of redeemed Israel, foreshadowing the nation's salvation when Christ returns. MacArthur. Verse 5, And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. The prophet Zephaniah spoke of this. Quote, but I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. For they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. That's a clever way to say they're protected. God is watching over them. Note, before the throne of God in the King James versions is not in the best manuscripts. The word translated lie or guile is the Greek pseudos, meaning there was not found in them anything false or especially false religion. They are consecrated to God and will have nothing to do with Antichrist's false religion. Note how pseudos was used by Paul in Romans one twenty five, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, we can say that they are also blameless before God because of of the blood of Christ. True. But I believe this verse implies before men as well. 
Even the unsaved can recognize righteous behavior in believers. They can even respect it. They, they may not agree with all your doctrine or theology, but they can recognize goodness and righteousness, and I believe that will be the case. These people will stand out. They will be a beacon of light during the tribulation. These people will be the real thing. Even the morally and spiritually depraved around them will attest to their honesty and forthrightness, morality and purity. Now, MacArthur wraps this up for us. I close with this. The 144,000 deserve a place in the hall of fame of the Christian faith. Hebrews 11. They will lead holy lives and minister effectively for God during history's darkest hour. Their exemplary efforts will spearhead the greatest spiritual awakening the world will ever see. The inspired account of their lives and ministry provides a pattern of triumphant Christian living for all believers to follow. Indeed, even us today. Patty. I don't think I can. There's different schools of thought on that. Um, now, my sources see them as, you know, we. it could very well be like it was in the Old Testament where they count only the men. And then there's, in addition to that, there's families. I'm guessing, just a guess, that that would be the case here. Because... Their roles as evangelists, as preachers, as witnesses, would preclude them being children or uh, in the in the uh, economy of God in the church, women. Uh, but I do think they're chaste because they're married. It's within marriage. Uh, so my guess is that these. The 144,000 is the men, and there's probably more along with them. But it, it doesn't really say, and that's just a, an educated guess. Okay. Our Father, we thank you for this passage. It is a glimmer of light in the darkness of the tribulation. And we thank you for the encouragement it gives us, but we also thank you for the application it, it presents. How we are to live now, we are to live separated, sanctified. We are to live righteously, holy, chaste. We are to do what the Lamb asks us to do. We are to follow what He does and where He goes. We are to live that way today. And by Your grace, we will. In Jesus' name, Amen.